Welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that can do it on a rainy night in Stoke, putting a two-foot challenge into the sturdy centre-forward of the news. I'm your host, Jacob Jarvis. Firstly, a podcast service announcement. If you're listening to this as usual, I wanted to let you know you can now watch Oh God What Now on YouTube, where you can discover, as one listener did this week, that Andrew Harrison is better looking than he sounds. Now, (laughs) let's get on with the show. As asylum seekers are moved onto the Bibby Stockholm migrant barge, Leanderson lays out the government's blunt position on immigration. Will the Tories ever stop trying to replay their old horrible hits? Plus, the woke mob, the blob, the elite, the people in charge who are making things worse have a lot of names for who they say are actually in charge and making things worse. So who are the elite and why is this buzzword taking the right-wing world by storm? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, why can't we be alone without being lonely? We chat solo cinema trips and not being afraid to be a Billy No Mates. Now, let's meet the panel. Rachel Cunliffe is the associate editor of The New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Rachel, you wrote a piece recently with the headline, Will Rishi Sunak Sack Jeremy Hunt? For people who haven't read that, (laughs) can you give us a spoiler? Will he? So I've uh, just been made associate political editor of The New Statesman, which uh, just moved me. Congratulations. Thank you. It basically moved me into the the politics team because they kind of figured I was talking and writing so much about politics anyway, they should sort of make it official. Um, And the one piece of advice I was given was don't make any predictions. It's not your job to make predictions, just a job to lay out the scenario. So I'm not going to answer that question uh, as to will he sack Jeremy Hunt. I would just say that if he wanted to sack Jeremy Hunt and replace him, he might end up causing himself more problems than he would solve. Because if you talk about replacing the Chancellor, the first obvious question is, yeah, but with who? Yeah. And there isn't anyone. It's another is an issue of Jeremy Hunt that he fills up a lot of the same political space that Rishi Sunak does. So he was kind of brought in to be this sort of, you know, quite methodical, sensible <laughs> person. And then Rishi Sunak came in and kind of had to keep him. But now it's like you've almost got this weird double act doing the exact same thing when it comes to vibe, at least. Yeah, it's definitely the same vibe. Uh, I would argue that that's probably preferable to having a chancellor who has a radically different vibe, whether that's, yeah, let's have loads of tax cuts, or we don't have to worry about fiscal responsibility, or inflation, who kind of cares about that. That's not really a message that is helpful for Rishi Sunak either. So uh, I can see why Hunt is kind of inconvenient for him image-wise, but it's really difficult to think of anyone who had different vibes who could replace Hunt that wouldn't make it worse. Seth Tevo is a journalist and author of Behind Closed Doors, a book about the private members clubs where the elite really hang out. Hello, Seth. Hello. Seth, so I know you keep a close eye on what's going on with Donald Trump and US politics, and we probably need a whole other podcast to be able to talk about that. But I wanted to ask you about one character from that particular Let's not even describe what that mess is, really. But uh, Rudy Giuliani, who is the the former mayor of New York, a friend of Donald Trump's, and the man who famously had his entire face sort of melt in that parking <laughs> lot, uh, that famous Four Seasons parking lot. But what's he been up to at the moment? Well, bear in mind that um, he's basically been referred to as an unindicted co-conspirator in uh, the latest indictment of Trump. So naturally, he's sp- spending his time doing commercials. Okay. Um, <laughs> he has a <laughs> podcast uh, which has been identified as his only source of income, and it's full of sponsored commercials. Don't knock it. It's an honest living. They started for products like uh, cigars and moved on to selling gold on the internet, like Nigel Farage, selling insurance, selling my pillows. It's getting more and more amateurish. They used to be well-edited, slick things. It's now a rambling man 
spending about six minutes murmuring about anything that comes into his mind about vitamin supplements whilst his off-camera <laughs> He really producer, doesn't look like he has lots of vitamin supplements, <laughs> I would say, either as well, to be honest. He claims he feels pepped up. I mean, let, let's not even go there as to what, what he's claiming is in them. But um, he claims that there are these fantasy things, but he then goes totally off message and starts deciding to fat shame Chris Christie for about three minutes, at which point his producer has to intervene and remind him that he's meant to be recording a commercial. Is Giuliani actually quite a good sort of... I think he really encapsulates just how American politics has gone, of just how people that could be respectable and do something maybe quite positive. You know, he was he was New York's mayor in 9-11. That was, he has, he was, had such a such kudos around him there. And he's just fucking tanked himself in such a strange way. Much like Donald mm. Trump, really, could have just stayed being really rich and famous and not disgraced himself in the way he has. Is he quite a, you know, a good indication of what American politics is like? Until his 2008 presidential bid collapsed and tanked, he was an A-lister. Mm. Um, he was not only able to command multi-million dollar fees for speaking appearances, he was able to determine a minimum size for the private jet that you had to send him to collect he and his entourage around. And now he's sort of scampering around to be a hanger-on to Donald Trump. I mean, that's a bold career choice, if ever there was one. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of many less people I would like to to hang on to, really, than him at the moment. He's become a bouncer. <laughs> uh, last but not least, we have journalist and campaigner Podrick Reedy. Hello, Podrick. Hello. So Robert Jenrick said actually one thing we can all agree with this week, and that is basically that Nadine Dorries needs to get a move on and actually resign and go. So, you know, he said, I don't think Nadine Dory's constituents are being properly represented. I hope she will reach that conclusion soon. Is the issue here perhaps, though, that even before she did this weird I quit but not act, that maybe her constituents probably didn't feel massively represented by her anyway? I think most of her constituents were probably delighted when she you know, got the TV gig um, because it was proof that she was still alive, which would have been a relief <laughs> for a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I, it, she's she's always fascinated me, um, Nadine, because for her literary career, um, even when she was cultural secretary, um, you know, the literary career used to take, pre take precedence. Now, in my other life, um, when I'm not here, um, I am also involved in a different podcast, which, yeah, which is called Little Atoms, which is, which, ooh, I know, <laughs> it's completely different, so don't worry about it. But, yeah, not that, you know, I'm not encouraging you to listen to anything by no means. But it's a books podcast, and we used to constantly get books, uh, PR, obviously, including from a very reputable um, books PR company representing um, Nadine Doris. This is while she was culture secretary. And we would get emails that said, which were billed as, you know, exciting new discovery from the agent who found who discovered Maeve Binchy. Paragraph three would be, so the whole thing would be about the, the exciting new discovery. Paragraph three would say, by the way, her name is Nadine Doris. <laughs> and then you would get to the official press release and the first line would be, better known as the Culture Secretary of England. <laughs> well, that's a bit like, say, you know, better known as the sidekick presenter on Pointless you know, for Richard Oz. Like, no, that's, 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 kind of, that's not how you present this. So this was like, while she was contrary to Culture Secretary, they were sending out these and hoping to get reviews of her books on kind of small, less specialist kind of uh, uh, podcasts. So I'm never sure that she's quite taken in Parliament that seriously yeah. anyway. So, but why she's so reluctant to leave, I can't really figure out. It's, it's, I, I think that there's, you know, there's a certain level of sheer stubbornness which has got her so far. But 
why it continues at this point, Lord knows. Yeah, she is the weird sort of axis of arrogance and stubbornness combined and meeting the perfect point, yes. which has left her completely frozen. I do like the idea of a kind of true crime uh, podcast about her, which we could do maybe, which would be that <laughs> no one knew where she was and then she appeared on GB News, kind of like, but shot like Don't Fuck With Cats, with loads of just sort of scary, really hyped up interviews there. <laughs> First this week, Lee Anderson has effectively enraged both the woke left and the French with his latest outburst, which unfortunately is a pretty good result for him, I would say. In a week where the Bibby Stockholm barge has taken on its first migrants, the Tories have ramped up their rhetoric to 11. Uh, Rachel, Lee Anderson has told the Express that if migrants don't want to be housed on a barge, they can fuck off back to France. And this was the kind of thing you would expect maybe, I don't know, a decade ago, something like the News of the World would be getting this as a scoop recording that no one wanted to come out. And now it just feels, I don't know, to you, to me, it feels par for the course. Would you say that's the case? I always feel very anxious about swearing on this podcast, even though everyone else does. But but Lee Anderson has done it, so 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 yeah. I, so I can. Uh, I think the. Um, language coming into political discourse that would have been unexpected back in the day we've sort of got used to that although we had we had Boris Johnson's uh, alleged fuck business line about about Brexit but that was a sort of reported conversation rather than, than him just going out and telling it to a newspaper but i think that's what they want that's what the conservatives want because you don't put somebody like Lee Anderson in the position of being deputy party chairman if you don't want these sound bites to get a much bigger Platform. In fact, it, it was his sound bites, not necessarily swearing, but his whole, you know, you can make meals for, for 30p and benefit claimants should have to learn to cook before they get any money. Like that, that was the kind of thing. In, in my day, my father grew all our vegetables in our back garden. Uh, that was the kind of thing that, that got him the attention that elevated him to that position in the first place. I think the Conservatives have decided, I think wrongly, and we'll get on to why that's wrong, both morally and electorally, perhaps later. But they've decided that they want to make immigration and, and stopping the boats the focus of, or one of the focuses of, of the next election campaign. And if you're going to do that, you have to draw attention to how hard line you're being on it. You can't draw attention to how effective you're being at solving the problem because they're not. So it all has to be rhetoric. And that's the whole reason for having a Lee Anderson in the first place. So he can make those comments. And then the more reasonable ones, Alex Chalk, Robert Jenrick can go on the airwaves and say, well, I think he, he used very robust language, but all of us share the sentiment, et cetera, et cetera. So we need do something to stop the boats. It gives them sort of a way in to appeal to the real hardliners, and then you can get the uh, the posh boys who talk nicely in afterwards to smooth it over. Did you find it strange though? To me, I thought the way they comment on it of not just being like, "Oh, Lee is his own person, and he will say things," and we agree with it. The fact that they genuinely said he's speaking for the government felt that just felt a little bit further, not just using him as a as a bulldog, but completely going, no, he is he's not someone we're using here. He is who we are. Now that felt like a little bit of a step further for me. I think it's 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 both. He is who they're using and that is turning them into who they are or really sort of exposing who they are um the they they don't want to have to talk about the practicalities. They don't want to have to talk about the fact that this barge is a fire hazard that it's got almost double the number of people going to house double the number of people that it's um, designed for that um, it is essentially a prison barge in the middle of an area that the locals don't want it that uh, it's got 
human rights issues that the, the lawyers getting involved. They don't want to talk about any of that. They just want to use it as a symbol for look at how hard line we're being. And for that very specific limited aim, it's actually quite effective. Well, other than for messaging, I mean, is it not just... It's cruel for so many reasons. I don't see how anyone could not see it as obviously just cruel and horrible. But is it just completely also practically pointless? One thing that always frustrates me about the Tories at the moment, this current iteration, is that they're they're bad at being Tories. They're bad at just doing even what they want to do. Even if I disagree with them and what they're doing, they just can't do anything. Like, this is not going to solve any of the problems they're even flagging. And it's also just going to get them into all sorts of legal trouble, which is going to be pricey, isn't it? So are they just they're stacking problems on top of problems here? Well, I'd love to see a breakdown of the costs of all the legal challenges versus the money that they're allegedly saving from not using hotel rooms. I thought there was a interesting admission they're openly saying now that it is meant to be a deterrent while at the same time saying no 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 it's perfectly fine accommodation so you've got that weird double think going on there um, but the one thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating was you've got people now saying could you just spend all the money that you're spending on fighting the legal challenges on getting more caseworkers so we could clear this backlog faster then you've got Robert Jenrick saying we don't want to clear the backlog faster <coughs> because if we process asylum claims too quickly that will be an incentive for people to come and you're like what so the, the backlog is now intentional none of it makes any sense yeah if the backlog hasn't grown because of the slowness at the same time I exactly mean, it doesn't seem like there's more incentive needed there at that point <laughs> i mean you know the rwanda policy was also a complete failure and seeing the government entrenched in legal fights at the moment just how badly run has britain's asylum and migration system come underneath the tories because i feel like they're just in a they're in a completely different world when it comes to this I think they're suffering from the fact that what people say they want, or what Conservative voters say they want, which is lower immigration, and what is feasible economically, those two things don't stack up. And if you look at the numbers, most, the vast majority of people coming here have got work visas or student visas and are net contributors to the economy. And if we stop that, everything falls apart, as we've seen with nurses and care workers and other shortage occupations. Um, and the government doesn't want to ad admit that that was a bit of rhetoric, that you can't really square that circle. So they have to go in really, really hard on asylum seekers. Um, but they don't want to go too hard on the schemes that we've announced and we're very proud of, like the Afghan refugee scheme or the Ukrainian scheme. Because again, those are really, really popular. And rather than just saying, come on, guys, you want us to lower immigration, but look at all the major types of immigration. These are all either vitally economically important or quite popular. Come on, what, what do you want us to do? They're pretending that there's a way that they can do both. And we've just got to a point now where it's been 13 years and all of the inherent paradoxes in that position are coming to light and they've got absolutely no idea how to deal with it. Seth, I mean, they've got no idea how to deal with it, but also is it just simply not in their interest to deal with it? They are so far behind in the polls, they need something to to grab onto and to utilise. And is this is this it for them? You know, there is no reason electorally, it wouldn't seem, for Sunak to want to fix this problem. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Rachel. I mean, there, there are two purposes why this is happening. One is a genuine attempt to deter future applications by being seen to be as tough as possible. But even if that doesn't work out, is to indicate things to voters. We are 
in the long campaign. It may last six months, it may last 18 months. But this is very much about free electioneering as far as the government is concerned. And it's very expensive electioneering. I mean, the cost of the Rwanda policy is £169,000 per asylum seeker. This is a massive publicity. You know, there were, what, eight people or something on the first flight that went out? This was in no way, shape or form a remotely practical policy. And the government's not making any attempt to seriously process these applications fairly. It's entirely about the optics of this. Um, the government has staked its re-election in no small part on this. What they don't want to say to voters is that immigration is a symptom and a driver of economic success. And they are trying to wrestle with the counterintuitive idea that, you know, it's some uh, damning indictment and you're a failing country if you have any levels of immigration. And as for asylum, I mean, remember, um, asylum seekers invented the nuclear bomb. Asylum seekers contribute to the economy. Um, so the, this stigmatization, I mean, it's, it's absolutely central to their re-election platform. But um, I do remember John Fortune um, as a satirist describing traditional conservative values, bashing foreigners, lower taxes and shagging anything that moves. <laughs> Rishi Sunak doesn't do the last one, in fairness to him, as far as, far as we know. As far as we know. Well, but, but he does a fine line in the sanctimoniousness and hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> He's too busy doing Taylor Swift-themed spinning classes at the oh, moment, and, apparently, and, anything else. And no. drinking vast amounts of coke. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to be in the position of quoting Lee Anderson twice in the podcast, but I'm going to. Uh, he told Nigel Farage on GB News, I am not going to sit here and make excuses to anyone. This is out of control. We are in power at the moment. I am the deputy chair of the Conservative Party. We are in government and we have failed on this. There is no doubt about it. We have said we are going to fix it. It is a failure. Seth, why aren't the Tories clocking just how much they're drawing attention to their fuck up here? They, they, they're using on one side, but this seems to be a totally catch-22 situation that they, they can't really get away from the fact that it's, it's all them. And why don't they seem to have that I mean, are they just as shit as I unfortunately think they are? Well, the figures don't lie. I mean, the policy is a complete comprehensive failure. But you can try a number of comms uh, responses. And the comms response they're going for is change the subject as much as possible and just, you know, go for authoritarianism as much as possible. Bear in mind that anti-immigration sentiment has been one of the Conservative Party's great arguments for well over a century. Um, I mean, if I can think of two sort of massive historical instances, one is over 120 years ago, it's the Chinese labor dispute of the 1900s. And this was, um, originally it was the liberals attacking the Conservatives over the use of indentured labor in the colonies like South Africa, but it morphs into a sort of conservative anti-immigration sentiment. And that element is always there, you know, when the Conservatives reconstitute under Baldwin. The other, the other major thing, obviously, is the rivers of blood speech. And people always talk about the speech from 1968, almost as if it's a separate standalone thing. But what happens after is really consequential, because the Conservatives come to power in 1970 on the back of that in a huge way. I and mean, if you look at the breakdown, country by country and region by region, uh, you start to see that the swing towards the Conservatives in areas around Powell's base in the West Midlands and amongst candidates who endorse Powell. You know, Ted Heath makes a great thing of saying as Tory leader, I'm going to sack him straight away, I disown him. 
But then the Conservative Campaigns Department really goes wild after saying, yes, of course, we massively support um, all of these sort of anti-immigration sentiments. And all through the 80s and 90s, whilst the Tories were in government, there was this very strong undertone of, yeah, but we're tough on immigration. And that hasn't gone away. It's only amplified. I mean, William Hague hugely stepped it up in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s with a campaign to uh, scrap the, um, you know, save the pound from being scrapped, all this kind of stuff. And Brexit has hugely tapped into that and made that the mainstream of conservatism rather than just this ugly side that occasionally revealed itself. With Podrick, with this, uh, a post from Downing Street on Twitter said in, in really bold capital letters, so you know it's really true and firmly said that the, the UK remains an open and tolerant country. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of the government equivalent of me saying I'm a nice guy? Uh, surely if it, if it were true, you, just, you, won't, you wouldn't need to say it. I think there, there, there's a contrast between the, the government and the UK itself. So I think the, the, the government certainly is not in any way signaling openness and tolerance with any of its messaging apart from saying that it's open and tolerant. Um, the country itself, there's, you know, look at the latest YouGov tracking. The most popular you know, opinion on immigration is that it is both good and bad. You know, that this is not a this is not a country which is very definitely down the path of you know zero immigration, zero refugees, zero asylum seekers. There is an argument to be had here, and there there are people who are very open to being convinced either way. And of course, the, the truth is, immigration is both good and bad. It is complex. It is you know it is, it is not an unequivocally wonderful thing. Very very few things are. But the fact that the, the conservatives you know have put this pure focus and we are going to stop a phenomenon which is essentially as old as time at a time of huge international upheaval, at a time when we have an economic system, a global economic system that demands flexibility. We have you know, a global geopolitical system where there is an enormous, you know, an enormous movement of people happening for very horrible reasons, where we have a climate crisis which is increasingly driving oh, on, you know, um, migration, which is again going to be, you know, only ramp up. To to simply say we're going to stop the boats is is a bizarre and it, it feels weirdly counterintuitive. I think Seth is right. It's it's, it's baked in in some ways to conservative messaging. They they can't bring themselves, no matter how they've done. You know, through the seventies and eighties, having you know through the Thatcher years, having massively opened up the countries economy to the global, to being a global phenomenon, being part of a global system, still not being able to say what this demands is bringing people, you know, here to work and attracting people here to work. You know, and looking at, you know, up until quite recently, for example, you know, the United States, obviously, there were again exceptions, obviously, again, actually with Chinese labor, but the United States generally made a good job of saying, you know, isn't it good that people want to come and live and work here? This country's never quite been able to resolve that for the past Two hundred years, going back, to, you know, going back to you know, even even when Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, there, you know, Britain was still uncomfortable for you know levels of Irish migration into onto the island. How the Tories are going to square this, I don't know. But the other interesting thing, looking at the YouGov trackers, is you know, Lee Anderson is in tune with the nation. Eighty percent of people think that the Conservatives do not trust the Conservatives to deal with this, whatever that means. Um, they also don't see you know, any evidence that the, the small boats issue is going to be resolved in any way by this government. So on that, he is at least right. 
Um, he is, it, it is a fair cop. But of course, what he's done is he has removed himself, and Rachel's absolutely right to point this out. They've removed themselves from any decision making or any responsibilities and saying, yeah, this is all just, you know, we're, we're as angry as you are. Well, you're the government, do something. <laughs> well, yeah, so this oversimplification of how they do things, I think, is really. You know, allow me to put my pop psychologist hat on for a second here, but I think the Conservative Party really projects its own shortcomings upon the public mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to, they can't seem to comprehend that because they can't deal with complex ideas and complex issues and the fact that two things can be true at once. They think nobody else can. Exactly. Whereas actually when you look at how people feel about all these things, of course they can. Of course people out there in the country can realise there are good things, there are bad things, and there has to be a system which processes all of the things. But for whatever reason, the Conservatives just seem to think, well, we don't get that. Rachel, a lot of the current figures in the Conservative Party are people who sort of cut their teeth in the 2010s. That was a time where migration felt like it was the issue that could really move people. Are they, are they kind of fooling themselves that it will be effective again? I think whether or not they've come to that position because of the the way the messaging was in the 2010s or because of other factors, um, it's not as effective as they think it is for a number of reasons. Two reasons that I think are actually quite sort of distinct from each other. One is that um, however hard the Conservatives try and make the debate about this, when you poll people about it, they might say that they think the Rwanda policy is okay or that they don't want the channel crossings. They, they, they might have the kind of views that Lee Anderson would say, look, see, they they, 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 they agree with me. But when you ask them uh, about how they feel about other issues, it's way at the bottom. We had a really fascinating session with some pollsters coming in from Redfield and Wilton to talk to us about like their polling in the run up to the election and um, if we had any questions. And I said, what are we as in the media missing from what we're covering um, in terms of what people care about? And he just went, the cost of living crisis. And I said, but we're doing it. We're doing stuff every day on it. He's like, no, you do not understand how much more important the cost of living crisis is than anything else. NHS also very high, obviously, um, strikes and public services, but mostly like it, it's the economy, it's people's living standards. And however much the Conservatives try and say, yeah, the economy, we fucked that up to some extent, but look at small boats, we can do that. Even for people who think that their policies on small boats are the right ones, they still are like, that. it doesn't help me with my mortgage or my weekly shop or the fact that my children can't afford to rent somewhere. Like none of that actually helps me. That's the first thing that I'm missing. It's just not as important to people as they want it to be. And the second thing I'm missing is even again, if they do want to stop the boats and they are very anti-immigration, as as is just we've discussed, it's the Conservatives drawing attention to their own failures on it. And to be able to say to people, isn't this terrible? I know we've been in charge for 13 years, but give us another term and we'll fix it. That's not a very compelling message either. I know we've talked a lot about Sunak's wealth plenty, and I think it can be quite an, you know, an obviously easy thing to criticise him about. But with that cost of living side, I mean, when there is that much of a gulf, do you think that there's just a lot of politicians genuinely can't comprehend the idea of, you know, when you don't have enough money, but to such a, an extent that it becomes the only thing you can think about? When you have to constantly think about it, it really does become something you you constantly think about and that they just can't, yeah. they really can't fathom. It's one thing not having as much money as you'd like. It's another thing having to all your energy been 
sucked into thinking about where money is coming from. Yeah, of course. And we saw that in the sort of austerity years, this complete lack of understanding as to what cutting something by £10 a week could do to families who are mm. really, really on that on that line. Um, so I don't think that's a new thing. What is a new thing, though, is that because of inflation, because of the cost of living crisis, a lot of people who thought of themselves as maybe middle class or affluent, comfortable, are now very, very much not comfortable. Look at Rishi Sunak's reaction to the guy who called into the, the radio show and said that his mortgage was going up by, I think, £500 a month, and mm. he wouldn't be able to pay it. And Sunak calmly explaining to him that on average, mortgages are only going up by £200. So really, everything's okay. Like that, that, that lack of understanding, but not realising that it's not just the very poor, it's not just those on benefits um, who have been scapegoated for you know two decades. It's everyone now. And it's kind of people who ordinarily might well vote Conservatives and they're fixated on it as well. And I don't think that sense of how bad has it got, even for the people who thought they were okay, that hasn't sunk in yet. Well, yes, it's this kind of they're pitting people who are struggling against people who are struggling. And all of these people who are struggling, it is the fault of this government. And they don't seem to clock that the, the number of people struggling is becoming exponentially bigger it's growing every single day so it's more and more people you're you're pitting each other against based upon what you have done and you can't just say actually your mortgage would be fine or your rent would be fine if it wasn't for this person who crossed the channel and is getting their legal fees paid for by the taxpayer like that that kind of line of don't blame us blame them i think people can see what's going on and rishi sunak i suppose would could say that if people were better at maths they could redefine the way they look at the average to make it look better for them if you go (laughs) for median mean or mode who knows how well you're doing no i I think maybe rishi sunak should take a case in a class in statistical averages (laughs) and uh and compare it to people who vote conservatives and maybe realize how much trouble that he's in Now, let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Remember, we put a call out for questions on our Patreon page every week, so don't forget to back us for a chance to have yours answered. This week, Nick Simmons asks, Why do people that pay for political podcasts and political journalists keep demanding more detail from Starmer and Labour? We're 15 months away from a general election, and any policy details given now will either be stolen by the Tories, see childcare, or used by the Tory press to say your taxes will go up, or Labour are weak slash dangerous on XYZ, see immigration. The general public don't pay attention to politics until the election is called, and that is why Labour are low on detail now. Rachel, do you agree with that? Do you think that, that it, there is a reason they should just go, you know, we are all really engaged in politics, people who listen to this are really engaged in politics, but maybe actually there is a huge amount of people that just are not engaged at the moment. I'm going to sound very 2010 here. I agree with Nick. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Nick, the, um, Nick Simmons, who, who, who emailed in, is absolutely right um, and, and spot on. It makes sense for Labour to stay as vague as possible for exactly those reasons. If you, if you come up with, with a, a bold new policy that will solve things like childcare, the Conservatives have time to steal it. Uh, and if it's something that's remotely controversial, anything to do with the NHS, anything to do with taxes, anything to do with the climate, you'll kind of get hammered for it. The reason that we as political journalists want to know is 
they are probably going to be running the country and it would be quite good to be able to have a sense of what are they going to do, what are the pros, what are the cons, can we analyse this a little bit? You know, we don't really know what Keir Starmer stands for. He's going to be the most important person in this country. You know, we deserve to know what's going to happen. That, that's why we want to know. Uh, and Labour's going, yeah, but we're not going to tell you. And <laughs> We're at a stalemate. Yeah, Podrick, would it be helpful though if Labour kind of at least suggested some some more vibe which is what I feel at the moment. Yeah, I, I understand not going into exact detail, but there's little stuff like, for example, them saying that they will continue to use the barges mm. rather than say, obviously, when we come into, a par- into power, we can't miraculously unpick everything in one day, but we will stop using them eventually. They seem to kind of be playing to reality to such a ludicrous extent that it's kind of like, yeah, no, we... We get it that we don't live in a magic wonderland, but yeah, there's just there just feels to be no positive outlook there mm-hmm. at the moment to me. I think, yeah, you, we, we are right now. There is a there is a, a feeling abroad that we're we're lacking the vision thing. I think that's absolutely right. Um, there is, and there is certainly a sense, you know, in the Labour Party that you know, I think I can't remember who, who was it used the. Um, the Ming Vaz mm. campaign basically is what's happening. So you have this majority, you just hold on to it for dear life. Um, but there's also there's a sense, I think, as well, that we're grasping around a bit because I was speaking to someone who would be described you know, in a in a Sunday Times piece as a veteran campaigner recently and, and we're talking about the, the difference between you know, the, the Biden campaign, which was big on vision, big on we're going to do all these amazing things, and is delivering, mm-hmm. by and large, on the, on the vision thing. And the difference between Biden, he said, was because Biden was able to do the very safe hands thing uh, in the elections. Just, we have to beat Trump. That's all we're here for. That's all we can do. Because he had a track record. He had a track record out there. You know, people could say, yeah, he's done this in the past. He's been around a long time. This is probably where we're headed. Here are the people around him. This is probably what they're going to do. He's the world's oldest man. He's the world's he's oldest man. You know, we can look at the entire <laughs> breadth of history. He was there um, yeah, with Mel Brooks playing him. Um, but with Starmer, because he is, you know, he's only been in Parliament, you know, less than a decade, um, very quickly elevated to the ranks. Obviously, people, there's nothing to point to. So it feels like there's a gap. And that's that is going to have to be filled at some point. Whether it, but I think Rachel's probably right. Getting into specifics is hard. Now that said, there are things that are out there that are good and that are you know that maybe have been underplayed both by the press and by the party themselves. That the twenty eight billion pledge on on you know, sustainable infrastructure is a big deal. It's a very big deal, and it is going to happen. It is not going to get dropped. And I think, but you do wonder why put that out there and then step Way back, back from it, from it yeah. <laughs> saying, oh, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's like, well, no, that's fine. We accept that. But, you know, we accept it's complicated. But shouldn't you be, shouldn't the messaging be, you know, you see, you know, what Biden does when he talks about the Inflation Reduction Act. It's like good union jobs, good sustainable union jobs over and over again is repeated. You know, and this is something that, you know, we've seen the, when, when the Tories tried to make hay with climate, for example, you know, you need to look at you know what we, the way we talk about climate shouldn't be. This is a, this is a going to be a pain and a tax and you less and LTN stuff. It's like no, we're creating amazing, sustainable industrial jobs, which is the plan. So why not talk about that more? It is it is I think a little frustrating, but I think it's something that will over time hopefully. And I think you know I worry that we don't have as much time as we think 
on this. You know, it, it could be 18 months. It could be six or seven. God knows what's going to happen with the Conservative Party. Could just start tearing itself apart yet again. Who knows? So the timing, I do find, you know, I'm not that confident that the Labour Party can just hold off and definitely till, till the campaign really kicks in. I think the vision does start to have, they need to be really confident with the vision early on. Detail can come later, but the vision has to be pushed more aggressively. I take a different view from Nick, and um, I'm afraid to see Rachel, sorry. Um, <laughs> I get the tactical wisdom of keeping your cards close to your chest. I get the understanding about this, but I think people are tired of high school debating tricks from politicians. And I think they're tired of the idea that in a five-year cycle of a parliament, you only get about six weeks in the run-up to an election where there are actually some new ideas that are being aired there. And I think good leadership actually involves building a consensus around new ideas, particularly if you want to do some bold, really big plan ideas like this. Well, that's my concern about the, the notion of the Tories stealing the ideas. We shouldn't be thinking that oh, shit, we've only got a limited amount of good ideas. We've had a long dearth of ideas for 13 years. Hopefully we could have a lot of new ideas. Yeah, and given that there is a sort of um, tribute act to the Blair years being done at the moment, there were actually quite a few policy ideas in the mid-1990s that were aired, not to any great uh, dissent or problem, actually, in the grand scheme of things. It helped. Um, it helps party activists to warm to these proposals, it actually helps the civil service to prepare for this stuff. So that the day you come into office, they say, oh, yes, we have a plan B we've been working on for the last 18 months because we knew that this was a distinct possibility. Um, so I, I think it's actually a helpful thing if strategically you pick a few big ideas and actually do run with them and they will end up being one of your big key themes. Unfortunately, I have terrifying news to break to you. Britain is now an elite dictatorship where majority opinions are crushed, according to Alastair Heath in The Telegraph. And surely they couldn't just print bollocks, could they? Uh, this is one of many terrifying headlines about this apparent cabal of Match of the Day presenters and podcasters taking over the world. We might never know what these people are banging on about when it comes to the elite, but we're going to take a stab at why they're banging on about it. Podrick, do you think there is really a, a defined group that is the elite? And what would you describe that as? Not from your perspective, mm -hmm. but from the perspective of the people who keep talking about them. I think there there are elites. Um, there are cultural elites, there are financial elites, there are political elites that in some places you know, overlap. That's certainly undoubtedly true. Um, and again, is one of these, you know, not to sound like too, too kind of relaxed, but it's something that, that is almost inherent in societies. These, these things happen. There is a sense, I think, that an elite is you know, people who have, you know, who, whose opinions are listened to and heard. Now, we saw Miriam Cates talking this week about, about um, elite opinions. And I think that that's, that's an illusion that's, you know, dangerous. There's a difference between, you know, there are a range of opinions among elites, but having an opinion who is, that is heard is, I think, part of the, the essential thing of, of you know, modern conception of what an elite is. And that's where the Tory attack line is. Like, these people, these people, these vague people who are making their podcasts on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they get the lion's share of attention and of influence. That's the crucial thing. Whereas you, you poor people in the in the red wall, who we the conservatives are going to help, 
um, nobody listens to you except us. Yeah, the, the strange lack of, uh, I don't know, self-awareness there from them, though, that they seem to, whilst they're writing opinion pieces and they're worried about people setting opinion mm. always seems quite strange to me. But, I mean, maybe they just don't actually... I hope no one pays attention to their opinions and maybe they think nobody does. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, what do you think about the this elite? I mean, do you, how would you just define it? Well, I don't know, but I studied classics, so I think I'm definitely part of it. Uh, and that was why I studied classics. Thank you very much. Um, well, the best insult I ever got online was I'd written an article about housing policy, I think, and like how we should build more homes. And I got a comment uh, anonymously on the City AM website, that's where I was working at the time, calling me an elite lizard, which I loved. I love that twist on an old conspiracy theory. Um, whether or not they knew I was actually Jewish, I don't know. But but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well versed in, in, in being an elite and I'm, I'm okay with that. But I think in the same way, another one of those phrases, chattering classes. Chattering classes is only ever used by populist opinion columnists whose main job seems to be being a pundit or being a, a, a commentator. And uh, it's one of those things that it's like, it's always people who have views that you disagree with. It's not what you do. It's not who you are. It's not where you went to university. It's not your income level. It's not your family background, what your parents did for a living. It's purely, do you have views that I agree with? In which case, you know, you're standing up for the people. And, and, and if not, you're a member of the Chattering Classes, Wokarati, Anti-Growth Coalition, Elite, or, or whatever. And I just find it quite funny. Not least because Elite used to be a good thing, right? It feels like a weird sort of reverse snobbery as well in a sort of strange way that it's kind of... It's like when they call people chippy for having an opinion. It's almost the same. That it's like, I dislike you, so I'm just going to to go for you as a person rather than go for anything you're saying, any of your opinions and what you are. I'm just mm. going to insult you. And if so, if you're someone who comes from a working class background, you're chippy and you should shut up. But then if you're posh, you should also shut up because you're posh. So it's like this weird kind of common people-ification of who's allowed to speak. Like you have to be this exact perfect type of person in the middle ground, which to me wouldn't really seem to to exist anywhere. But but equally, it's more about your your views that any characteristics that you have, whatever characteristics you have, those characteristics will be used against you. I love the idea of the new elite, which is Matt Goodwin's phrase. Oh, and I will, I will admit that I have not read his book, but I've read all of the articles that he is someone who is definitely, definitely not in the elite chattering classes managed to get in national newspapers, um, in which he seemed to suggest, and maybe I'm just too elite and too stupid to understand his argument, but he seemed to suggest that somebody who came from a working class background, was the first in their family to go to university, worked hard at school, went to university and has got a low paid job in publishing or the media in politics and happens to be quite left wing. That person is part of the new elite because they went to university and they have left wing views. But somebody who's a hedge fund manager earning God knows how much, who has parents who were also hedge fund managers and who went to the same university doing the same course, but happens to be anti-immigration, they're not new elite. And when you when you point out that distinction, he blocks you on Twitter. So who knows? Uh, Seth, has this definition of elite always changed throughout history? 
Yeah, because society has changed. I mean, what's interesting is the idea of elites are very much bound in with populism. And you tend to think of this as, oh, well, it's, it must be a sort of Marxist concept. Well, it really predates that a great deal. Um, the idea that the wisdom of the crowd, we, the salt of the earth people, have a wise collective wisdom, and these out-of-touch people who are in control are, are misgoverning us. I mean, this is as old as time itself. Um, what's interesting is that you get, I mean, very early on, quite conservative groups, for example, uh, anti-Catholic campaigns, anti-Semitic campaigns, where politicians are really bad at lobbying those in power. So they do this out of desperation. It's only one, I suppose, in an era of limited democracy, we better ask the people because that'll give us some moral authority, even if we've not got any other authority. Um, it's really interesting how people use social markers in this way. Um, language is a really fascinating one. Uh, what is considered to be a posh accent changes dramatically over time. So, uh, for example, in the Middle Ages, uh, having a Welsh accent was considered to be posh because of the royal family. But the Welsh language uh, and the Welsh accent of the Middle Ages was more like a Birmingham accent. It was more Mercian because that's where with migration patterns people were settled. And certainly regional accents were really huge in the Victorian era. If you've heard the original wax cylinder recording of Gladstone, he's got a Scouse accent. He's from Liverpool. You get these bits of accent that are really very, very important. And um, the idea that the you know RP denotes this, that was really at its high point probably around the Second World War. It's declined since then. Now they've done um, some really interesting experiments where they look at what do people instinctively listen to as an authoritative, trusted voice. 80 years ago, it was definitely RP. Now it's... David Tennant doing Doctor Who, which is not <laughs> even his real voice. It's a mockney accent. It's really very interesting. You saw that with Tony Blair. Tony Blair would speak with these frightfully well enunciated tones in the House of Commons, and then he sort of dropped these H's a bit like that and speak when he was on the campaign. You don't speak like that naturally. That's something you're putting on. But the way that we try and send signals, I mean, it's really, really fascinating. It says so much about human behaviour and what what is it that makes us have a sense of belonging and what is it that makes us feel excluded and angry? It's a, well, an interesting thing on accents. I remember we did a bunker about it ages ago, and apparently it shows empathy if you change your accent to other people. Because it's a sort of way of fitting in with everyone else there. I mean, Rishi Sunak has clearly been dropping his glottal, <laughs> doing glottal stops a little bit there. And I have been much criticised as a podcast host for doing that, so I'm sorry to anyone that it really, really annoys. <laughs> uh, so, Miriam Kate suggested in The Telegraph uh, that a university elite overproduction has shifted the UK to the left. Again, I assume The Telegraph couldn't possibly print that unless it were... 100% verifiable. I think this is part of the conservative problem, which is that universities used to be part of the elite, unmistakably. Um, remember, this, there was a time when less than 5% of the population actually went to university and you treated them as uh, as expensive finishing school for uh, private schools. What's happened since then, not only with the threat of education, is a lot of research shows education makes people more left-wing. I mean, it does a lot of other things in terms of making people more likely to question, but this is what is motivating this whole thing about, oh, we've got a crisis on our campuses and we well, want to question you know, all of these people who are um, woke, etc. The government basically doesn't like what universities are churning out. And there are a number of things they can do. They're, they're defunding them for totally separate reasons, but it does also uh, lead into this whole sort of questioning, well, you're not a real person, you don't count, and you're part of the elite. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went to the 117th best university in the country, and I think even I could be thrown into the elite there. So they, they're all doing oh, it I at the moment. You, you definitely could, because you also work in 
media and politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other marker, um, according to to Matt Goodwin, um, and I, I'm not I'm, I'm not making any assumptions at all. But if you have a partner who is similarly educated or in a similar field of work, then that's very new elite because you're only socialising and having romantic relationships with people who are from this new superclass. And I bet if you have children, you'll raise them to have similar political views. And I'm like, isn't that what people have done for, you know, millennia, meet people in the fields where they're educated and where they Mm. work? And My my girlfriend's far more highbrow than me. So I'm not only in the elite, I'm a climber as well. I'm really, I'm a a chippy elite climber. She's dragging you up. The elite ladder. Speaking really <laughs> <laughs> of elite climbers, can I briefly talk about Matt Goodwin here? Because um, <laughs> I was sitting, sipping my latte outside my local Italian deli in my comfortable North London suburb, and who should walk by with his family but uh, Matt Goodwin, who I sort of vaguely acquainted with, and said, "Hello, how are you? What brings you here?" And uh, you know, I'm not going to name the suburb to embarrass him, but uh, turns out he lives in the very nearby leafy North London suburb. Me <laughs> noted for its uh, large numbers of left-leaning intellectuals, and I thought, well, that's a turn-up for the books. <laughs> <laughs> I think, to just briefly, there's, um, you know, I think the conservatives, you know, the, the, the conservative argument, you know, the populist argument, is also sh- always shifted towards, you know, towards the cultural elite, as opposed to the financial elite, that the focus is always on cultural elite, because that's, you know, that is probably where people can Paradoxically, it's where people can rise more quickly, work through the ranks, such as ourselves. But I, I found a great line from, um, this always st- struck me from Arthur Kostler um, writing in 1944. And before anyone writes in, I fully recognize Arthur Kostler was in many ways a terrible human being, but it, it's too late to cancel him now. Um, but he, in, a, in an essay, in, in an, actually an answer to a reader's letter in Tribute 1994, wrote the wonderful line, your opponent is not the highbrow, but the rich. Which I think is, is, is the exact opposite of what Matt the Matt Goodwins of the world want us to think. Yeah, well, that, is that the weird thing? There is this, I mean, Rachel, you kind of mentioned this, this, there's this financial disconnect about it, that you could be the richest person in the world, but somehow not be elite in the same way. Like Elon Musk, because he just posts loads of shit jokes and is quite lowbrow, it would seem to me, in that. Does that make him less elite than me, just because my joke's probably a little bit, I don't know, more niche and about the Sopranos and snobby shit TV like yeah, that. I, th- I think that's exactly what it is. I think the reason for that is you've got to be careful. If you criticise the elite too much, it looks like you're criticising aspiration and people who do well for themselves or people who want things that are better for their children and so invest in their own education, their children's education, and who succeed. I think that's a success story, right? To go off to university and get a good job and be able to influence society. So it has to be, oh no, if you're doing that by just earning loads of money, that's fine. But if you're doing that and having opinions that we don't like, that's because you're some kind of shadowy elite cabal I, I, the last podcast I did before this was about QAnon so I'm sorry if some of that <laughs> sort of starts seeping in but I think that's part of it as well this idea that stuff goes wrong and we can't blame the people who've been in power for 13 years like because they're the one they're, they're telling us you can't, you can't blame us ah, we need someone else to blame who can we blame who can we blame it, it's the elite who are the elite it's everyone that we don't like it's a it's a deflection it's basically the, the same thing as with the migrant crossings blame the people coming across the channel for the fact that your cost of living uh, costs have, have, have all increased and, and blame the 
left-wing university graduates for the fact that we can't pass the policies we need to do the things that you want us to do. It's, it's quite defeatist, really, mm. when you think about it. These are the people that mean that we're rubbish at our jobs. Sorry, guys. Seth, basically, I mean, to, to kind of wrap this up, it feels like there's almost nothing really new here. There have always been elites around and sometimes they are they are criticised. Would some of these people, and particularly the Conservatives getting behind this, would they be better placed to kind of reject the notion that being being posh is no longer in vogue and kind of say, you know, actually make a case for being aspirational and wanting to be part of the elite? I think there's something very new here which is going on, and that's a sort of middle-class crisis. Uh, if you were here 50 or 80 years ago, the idea that the middle-class lifestyle, you've got a London townhouse and you've got a place in the country and you've got maybe a holiday home and you send your kids to private school and all of these sorts of things, these would have been upper middle class but not outrageously expensive. There's no way you can do that now without a multi-million pound income a year. And the sacrifices that need to be made to do that very often involve saying, well, I'm not going to be too particular about what I go into or the ethics of the industry or the sorts of fabulous sums of money required to do that. And that is leading to a sort of desperation amongst traditional conservative voters uh, because they don't have the, the meat that's being thrown to them to keep them happy. Um, and meanwhile, for the reasons of the cost of living crisis we've talked about, no one's feeling particularly as if they're getting anything out of this. We've reached the end of the show, so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Uh, Podrick, what's yours? Um, I've come up with a rather grim woman, for, I'm afraid, um, saying that the the hole over the and the ozone layer over the Antarctic, which I'd sort of thought we'd fixed, has actually started growing bigger this summer than apparently it grows every year and then shrinks again. But this summer it started growing a lot earlier and a lot faster than it used to, which is all down to apparently a, a volcano explosion near Tonga. Um, but it's got, potentially has massive ramifications for the southern oceans because already the ice caps you know, on the Antarctic are quite at record lows. We could see flooding you know, into the Pacific. It's already a big issue. So that's something that is really quite grim. There is, interestingly, there is a case uh, which is coming up in a few months' time to establish that this that lack of action on climate change on climate change is a direct contravention of the human rights of South Sea Islanders, um, and I think something like this, which is partially due to climate change, partly due to natural natural phenomena, will really feed into to the, the alarm over that case. Uh, Rachel, what's yours? And I understand you've oh. got something a little bit lighter <laughs> to come to after that. I can't segue. I'm not going to try and segue. Okay, there's got to be some sort of link. I mean, climate change is big. It's got a huge thing. There's got to be a connection here. It's about animals, which is okay. to do with, you know, the environment, climate. Mm, not really. BBC headline, urban foxes bolder but not smarter than rural ones. Study suggests they've actually studied this. Uh, scientists at Hull University set a whole lot of puzzles for rural foxes and urban foxes to test if the if the urban ones were smarter. Apparently, all foxes are really stupid. None of the, none of the foxes were able to do the puzzles, but it just allows me to talk about the family of foxes that are where I live um they've just had fox cubs they're very 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 cute so they cute, they, they love humans they're super curious but i came back late on saturday night to find three of them just 
chilling out, hanging around. And the fourth one was curled up asleep on the roof of a car, just like a cat. They are cat software running on dog hardware. I love foxes. They're amazing. Don't write in and tell me that they, you know, rummage through bins and spread diseases and kill chickens. I don't want to know. I love foxes. Yeah, there was one basking in the sun on the table in the garden the other day. And then for some annoying reason, the dog, the dog came in. Like he had been taken out for a walk, came in and I was just like, don't piss this fox off. He's having a really nice time and then was just straight up at the window. <laughs> fox terrified. And I just thought, come on, you've got a home. The fox doesn't have a home. It was just having a nice little bit of joy. Nice sunbathe. Uh, Seth, what's yours? Uh, this is a weird story. The comedian Joe Pascal has impaled himself on a moose's antlers in Skegness. Um, you couldn't make it up. No, he, he was doing a show and two of his props were moose's antlers and he'd shoved them backstage and then in the dark he tripped over and impaled oh. himself and he's lucky to be alive but he will pull through. I thought it was completely made up because it was on the front page of the star but it turns out it's entirely true. Gosh. Uh, I mean, just I've been to Skegness many a time in my life and maybe that's an indication of don't go there. <laughs> uh, my one is going to be actually that Donald Trump is going to face potentially more charges next week from the Fulton County District Attorney. And I just think it's important that we keep talking about this yeah. because if that were to, if that had happened in isolation, it would be monumentally huge. But he's just kind of done, it's like his whole fill the zone with shit and people will ignore it tactic is happening with his, his legal travails at this point. There is so much going on that it's being completely ignored. And I, I hope it doesn't start to just sort of fade down to, to background noise. And that's the show. Uh, thank you to Seth. Thank you. Uh, to Rachel. Thank you. And Podrick. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello, and many thanks for your support to some of our new backers. Srishti Calro, Celia Pontin, Oliver Dutton, and Hillary. And a special shout out to some lapsed backers who are renewing their vows, as it were. Hello to Will Griffin, Kate Wood, and Ewan Parry. And with some more return backers, thank you very much, Jane Marsh, Alistair Findlay, and Anne Hignett. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis, with Rachel Cunliffe, Podrick Reedy, and Seth Tabor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Chris Jones, with me, Alex Reese, and assistant production by Adam Wright. Video production and socials by me and Jess Harpin. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. So what is something that is best done on your own? I'm going to set some ground rules now. We've all thought of the obvious gag already. Revel in your filthy minds and let's get on with a fun, clean family-friendly podcast. So The Independent published two pieces taking different stances on doing activities solo in recent days. So one had the headline, doing things alone isn't self-love, we don't need to make everything empowering, while the other spoke of the joy in solo dining, criticising a Sunday Times critic who had disputed that. So should we be kinder about doing things alone, or is the fact that it's deemed unusual an issue in and of itself? So, Rachel, I mean, do you think it's strange that just doing something on your own becomes a talking point now. Yeah, 
very much so. I, 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 I'm, I'm in this weird space where I simultaneously think that doing things, going to the cinema, going to the theatre, going for dinner on your own is an absolutely fine thing to do and shouldn't be something that anyone criticises you for. But also we don't have to make it empowering. It can just be yeah. a thing that, that, that you like to do. I used to go to the cinema on my own all the time um, because... All you're doing is sitting in a dark room, a silent room, what used to be before COVID, for two and a half hours. Like, why would you waste somebody else's yeah. time by t- taking them taking them with you? Yeah, like, My, it's the weirdest uh, date. date I know, it's, it's the wor- yeah. worst why date idea ever. Uh, and uh, the other week, I had three hours of radio and TV broadcast to do that wouldn't get me back until one in the morning. And my husband took the opportunity to go see Oppenheimer, which is perfect, because oh, I don't want to see it. Yeah, my, my best ever cinema experience was going to see the Han Solo movie on my own at like 11pm and there was no one else in the cinema. So I was like literally entirely alone and I sat in the exact middle seat and just thought, what the fuck, isn't this just the cinema? Why isn't this just what it is? Like I would pay a lot more to just come and do this. So, I mean, this all came to fore after a woman going to see Barbie alone was highlighted on social media. I mean, do you worry that we're creating a sort of world where... You've got to be a little bit self-conscious whether you're around people or not. I mean, the joy to me of going and doing stuff on your own is you don't have to give a shit about other people being around. But now you can kind of become a meme yeah. for doing it too. No, I am I am very, um, I get very anxious every time I see videos that people have taken of people out in public, whether they're dancing or like having a conversation or an argument or whatever. And you just see one clip of it and it's obvious they haven't consented to, yeah. to be to be filmed. Everything is turning into discourse as well. Like the fact that we're having this, this conversation, like you don't have to have a strong opinion on this. You could just go to the cinema. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning and some merchandise which is much better than Keir Starmer flip-flops but maybe not as good as a Chaos with Ed Miliband's Spoon. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 